Sometimes it probably feels to each one of us that we live in a day of unprecedented evil. Daily, weekly, we are confronted by stories of outrageous, of unspeakable evil that exists in our world. The media thrusts them before us. They have the ability now to collect them, not only from a region, but from all around the nation, from all around the world, and to put them in front of us, whether in print or on television, and we soak it in. You don't need me to describe any of those things for you. They are unspeakable. We're in an age of incredible access to stories that are awful, like the one that we read about here in Judges. But a quick review of history, even a brief look at the scriptures, reveal to us the simple fact that our age is not unique. We are not the first generation to experience the kind of horrors that we see in our world. Human history is littered with shocking episodes of outrageous evil, like the one in this text. And we wonder, how do we process this? How do we make sense of what's going on? How do we raise kids in a world like this? How are we to feel about all these things? Judges are certainly not going to answer all of those questions, but judges at least in this section here can give us some things to think about with respect to outrageous evil. And that's what I'd like to look at today. I'd like to look first at the evil that is here, and then secondly at the outrage that accompanies the evil that is on display. So first, the evil. What takes place in this passage is an abomination. It is repugnant. It is repulsive. And we naturally and we appropriately recoil when we hear it. When, when you heard that read, and I suspect that many of you have either read it before or even this week in preparation, perhaps read it this week, but we recoil. And, and, and there's even a recoil when we hear it read out loud in a context where other people are hearing this as well, where there are young people around us as well, and we kind of are disgusted by what we see here, and that is as it should be. That has to be one of the purposes that is taking place here. The exposing of evil and making some then observations of this evil that is kind of set before us in the word of God so that we're forced to look at it in the same way that Israel was forced to look at it, we can say a few things. And the first thing that I think we can say is this, evil is evil. This is confirmed in this passage by the many words that are used to describe what's taking place here. Words like, this is evil, this is vile, it's wicked, it's outrageous what is taking place here. And we see that the reaction 
corresponds to exactly that, to just how evil this is. Now, saying that statement, evil is evil, may sound obvious. Of course, it may sound redundant to us, but it is not. To say that evil is evil is to recognize on some level that we inhabit inescapably a moral universe, that there are laws that govern the way people should relate to one another and interact with one another and interact with the world that is around them. And not only are there laws, but there is a lawgiver. So that this idea of every person doing what is right or what is good in their own eyes without reference to that law and that lawgiver is in fact nonsense. That's the judgment of the writer on all of this. This is a nonsensical period. If evil is in fact evil, then the presupposition is that there is a good that stands outside of that evil and says, this is good. This is good and that is evil and that is not merely dependent upon my personal opinion of what is good or evil. Something stands outside of me and outside of you to declare this is good and that is evil. Evil is evil. A second observation. Evil has a compounding nature to it. When investigators, think of any kind of investigators, when they, when they go to examine a crime or a shooting or some kind of a terrorist act or even think of uh, an investigation of why a plane crashed, why did this plane go down, they try, the investigators, to piece together what took place, what caused this, how did the destruction occur, and so they begin from the destruction itself, whatever that destruction may be, and they work their way backwards, piece by piece, trying to understand what happened here, what took place in order to cause this, and sometimes they discover things like mental illness, Sometimes they discover a feud that's been going on for a long time, happened to be now the thing that triggered the wreckage that they're looking at in this particular place. Or sometimes when they're doing this with a plane, and, and we've all seen, read, or heard these stories, they'll go back to something that happened that's catastrophic and awful, and they'll go back and realize it was a case of metal fatigue, or maybe a little bit of a design flaw, or maybe a rivet that had begun to wear away, they often get down to something small from the large wreckage that is in front of them. One writer does that with this passage here. He basically takes the approach of starting at the end, starting in Judges chapter 21, and he asks the question, why would the tribe of Benjamin go and capture 200 women who are out worshiping the Lord. Why were 400 women captured from this city, and how did all of the people of that city get killed? How did Israel 
end up in a civil war against Benjamin in which, by this account, more than 50,000 people are killed in this battle. Now, I think those are round and representative numbers, but the point being, a lot of wreckage takes place here. There are a lot of people laying dead, and how did body parts end up being sent throughout Israel? So you start from the end, and you work your way back, and you're asking the question, what caused this? And the answer, amazingly, is a household dispute. A household dispute caused this. Take it right back. Take it right back down to 19. A dispute between a man and his concubine, whatever it was. And the, the Hebrew is actually a little bit complicated there uh, as to whether it was adultery, whether she was going out uh, seeking other partners, or whether there was anger. It's a little bit unclear exactly what took place, even though your ESV versions make it uh, pretty clear what's taking place here. And the, the word concubine is an odd word. Uh, we don't really know why concubine is used here. It's, it's kind of like a, a second wife type thing. It's, it's just unclear why that's being used. So there's, there's ambiguity in this. We don't know all of the details and looking back on it. But clearly what we're led to see is that it all comes back to, all of the wreckage that we see comes back to one household dispute. How many of your arguments do that? They can start with the dumbest, stupidest little thing. And they go boom. And they snowball into things and you're thinking, how did this get started? How did we end up here from this that was right here? This is, this is the answer. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the principle that's articulated on the front of your bulletin from Romans chapter 5. The way sin works. You think it can be confined to four walls? Within your four walls? We think that it can be small? Sin has a compounding aspect to it. A third observation. Evil has degrees. Sin is sin and evil is evil. But to understand the book of Judges and the way that it is written, and to understand this passage in particular in its essence, we have to see the degradation of Israel that has taken place throughout the book and then within this story as well. Lower and lower she descends. This story, while chronologically, probably early in the time of Judges, given the fact of one person whose name is mentioned in the story, one of the priests, Phineas, given uh, it, it, the fact that it's early chronologically, nevertheless is saved to the end by the writer because he wants us to see how far the decay has taken place to show us the endemic depravity in a home, in a town, and in the nation as a whole. We have sometimes, I think, I think this is probably true for many of us, we have sometimes been guilty of 
minimizing sin and its heinousness or relative heinousness by saying something to the effect of, well, everyone's a sinner. You know, this person did this, but I'm a sinner. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does things that are wrong. Now, there's truth to that, right? That there, there's a level of truth, and I don't want to deny that. There is a level of truth to that thing. But that is not the final word that the Bible has to say about the nature of sin. The person who commits the sin, the person against whom the sin is committed, the circumstances surrounding it, the nature of the sin all help us to see how heinous the thing is and how then outraged we should be about a particular sin. So this passage begins squarely within the realm of hospitality. Okay? Household dispute leaves the household, boils over into the hospitality, kind of effusive hospitality, that is shown by the man's father-in-law, by the, the, the father of the concubine, of the wife. He shows effusive hospitality, and you could look at this entire thing that has taken place through the lens of hospitality. Do you love your neighbor? In one sense, is the very simple question that goes through a passage like this. How do you treat the stranger who comes into your place? It could be a failure of hospitality. Now, a failure of hospitality is bad. It's bad. Uh, you're going to have to forgive me here. There are, there are strong words that I would like to use, graphic words that I would like to use. I want to be careful simply for the sake of the younger ears that are in the room. So I'm going to ask you adults to fill in the proper words that need to be here to understand what I'm saying here. Failure of hospitality is bad. Attempted group sexual assault is worse. Group assault of anyone is evil. Group assault of a child is worse. And you know it. I'm saying that just because I want you to know that you understand that immediately. I don't have to convince you of it. You know it's worse. Group assault of a woman is evil and despicable. Group assault of a man compounds the evil by being yet another violation of the way that God has made us, the way he has created us. And the failure then of the Benjamites to protect those who have come into their town from that kind of assault is compounded by the fact that when it takes place, they won't turn over the people who did it. A lot could have been avoided. A lot of bloodshed could have been avoided. If when Israel came and said, give us the worthless fellows who perpetrated this, they would have, in fact, given them the worthless fellows. But they don't. They protect the abusers. 
They protect the perpetrators of this. There are degrees of sin, and it compounds. A fourth observation about evil. Evil is essentially dehumanizing. It is inhumane. The wicked desires of the men of Gibeah are inhuman. The callousness, the, the unbelievable, right? It's unbelievable, the callousness of the host who says, don't do this to the man, but here's my virgin daughter and his concubine is inhuman. And then the man who, in the midst of what's going to happen here, sends out his concubine into that mess, it's inhuman. The comment, get up, let's be going. Who has words to explain what that comment is? Who, who, can, who can even imagine saying that as a human being? Heartless hardly describes it. The division and the distribution of the body like an animal. Divide up the parts, send it out. We'll see that later in scripture done of an animal. It's barbaric. The capturing then as it moves along of the women to be wives for the remnant of disobedient Benjamin is simply savage. Evil, sin, sucks the humanity out of us. Evil is evil. Evil or sin has a compounding nature to it. Evil has degrees and evil is dehumanizing. And the author says, take a look at it. Take a look at it. And God would overcome it. God would overcome this destruction. And the rebuilding of their humanity, the rebuilding of our humanity begins in the response of outrage. If, as someone has said, the distinguishing characteristic of absolute despair is silence. If that is true, if, if absolute despair means you say nothing because you have no hope, you're in complete despair, then the capacity to be outraged about what has taken place, shocked by this evil, is actually a gift from God. The ability to see it, the ability to call it what it is, is a gift from God. It stirs us. The end of chapter 19, when we read, and all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. They're outraged. It begins to stir us when we consider when we see such evil. It unites us. The outrage unites us as it unites them. 
And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. Israel is finally united. We hardly ever see Israel united. Israel's united in outrage. And they're united, in verse 10, to bring retribution. When they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. This is not vigilantism. It's not taking matters into your own hands. It's retributive justice. The people are awakened to the need to purge the evil. Yeah, that's what it says there in chapter 20, verse 13, that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. Outrage leads to the desire to purge the evil. That is why, if you take the scriptures as a whole, we see that the power of the sword is entrusted to the state for the punishment of those who do evil, for the rewarding of those who do good. To the church is granted church discipline. To the family is granted authority over the children. And to each and every one of us belongs the call, purge the evil. Put it in New Testament language, mortify the flesh. Don't condone it. Don't countenance its presence. Put it to death. It has to be removed. It has to be cut out. Or it will destroy. Now, as chapter 20 shows, and I know that I didn't read this particular section, it is not easy to do so. It is costly to do so. It's going to cost the Israelites 40,000 plus men in battle to purge the evil from their midst. Why is it so costly? Why doesn't God just, just bless them? Clearly we know who's done wrong here. Benjamin has done wrong. Why not just bless him, get the victory into their hands? Why do you have to lose two battles to do it? Well, as it turns out, that which we seek to destroy is in us as well. That's why it gets so complicated. That's why it is so costly. That's why it is so hard for us to mortify the flesh. Romans 7 is the internal look at this, if you will, where Paul's struggling with that dynamic in his own life. This is the corporate look at this. This is the picture from a big cultural thing of which Romans 7 is the intimate picture of what takes place in the heart. And then, of course, the, the, the lament of how hard this has been, of how many people have been lost, not only from within Israel, but the loss of a tribe. That becomes the lament of chapter 21. Having achieved the victory with only 600 of the Benjaminites remaining, there's no celebration. There's no like, yes, got them. Put them to death. Send up a cheer. Instead, there is a lament for the loss of a tribe. 
Israel laments. Israel has become united, but she has become united against herself. And, and, and where's the joy in union against yourself? Israel has become what she was to destroy, which is to say she has become Canaanized. The process is complete. She is the subject of the devotion to destruction that should have been to the Canaanites. She has become, and I haven't, I'm sure you've made this connection in your mind already, I haven't said it yet in the sermon. She has become Sodom. She has become the epitome of evil. A man avoids a town of Canaanites, right? I don't want to go into Jerusalem, Jebus, because at that time it's still populated by foreigners, by Canaanites, to turn to a town in Israel, and instead what he finds is Sodom. Sodom at Israel's heart. It is sad, and Israel is sad about it, and of course they pursue the complicated, misguided attempt to fix it, to repair it, by doing that which is right in their own eyes. Israel isn't simply the victim of evil in Judges. She's the root of the problem, the perpetrator. That is how Judges comes to an end. That is how it started, with an examination of the heart, testing them to see what was in the heart, and this is the result of the test, and it is clear. But here's a reminder. This is something the author knew when he was writing it, and it is something that we are well aware of as well. Here's the reminder. God preserved them. God saved a wretch like Israel. He saved a wretch like you. And he saved a wretch like me. In conclusion to the book as a whole, perhaps the words that I've already highlighted a couple of times in the sermon, but that end chapter 19 could be words that help us to conclude it as a whole. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. We hear the phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I suspect that you, like me, when I hear that phrase, think to ourselves, wow, that sure describes the world in which we live. It sure describes our culture. Everyone is doing that which is right in their own eyes, and maybe that's true. But what Judges is saying is that it describes us as well. In fact, it describes us in the first place. Judges is not a rebuke. 
to the Canaanites, to the nations of the world, although it is. It's a rebuke to Israel. Israel is the one who is being judged in the book of Judges. But a rebuke is a call. It's a summons. It's a warning. It's a call to the people of Israel. Repent. Repent. You need a deliverer. And you need deliverance. Throughout the book, we've asked along with Israel the question that I used as the title of the series as a whole from the book itself. Who is the man? Who's the one who's going to deliver us? We've shared their disappointment and learned with them that there is no man. For outrageous evil, when it is investigated, when you take a look at the outrageous evil and you begin to investigate it and you take it back, that's another step and another step and another step, you trace it back and we find something that is dark and similar in each of us. Who then is the man? Is the question with which Israel is left. God will need to work the deliverance through a new man. And if you compare the way that sin works, it is the same way that then the righteousness of God works in the world. A God-man whose one act of righteousness will yield compound interest, justification, and life to men and women around the world. If we traced Why are we sitting here in this room? Why are there a hundred plus of us sitting here in this room and sitting in other rooms and churches all around the area? If you trace this massive statement of God's blessing into the world and you say, where did that come from? And you might trace it back 20 years and say, well, there were some people at 10th church who wanted to plant a church and uh, and they started this church. And you'd trace it back further and you'd say, okay, when, when did 10th start? When did this blessing snowball like this? And you trace it far back, and what you will find is one man's act of righteousness. One man's act of righteousness has given birth to this blessing, a mirror of what takes place with sin in an amazing way. Evil is evil. Sin is deadly. Fight it with all you've got. Abhor evil. Battle for a pure heart. Consecrate yourself to the Lord. Pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the end, though, and in the beginning of that fight, take refuge in the one whom God has sent, in the Savior, Jesus Christ. His grace taught your heart to fear. His grace enables you to see how abhorrent this text is. His grace Your fears relieved. His grace has brought you safe thus far. And his grace is the only thing 
that will take us home. Lord God, as we sit, stand here today, you know our hearts better than we know them ourselves. Search them and see if there be any wicked way in us, any anxious way in us, and purge it out. And lead us in the way everlasting. Jesus, you are a mighty Savior, greater than all our sin. Thank you for your victory. We pray that you would help us then as your servants to fight. Grant us your grace and your strength and your spirit to do so. We pray in your name. Amen.